Hello everyone, you are listening to the podcast In Conversation with IPR and Competition Law. I am Aditya Trivedi, founder and head of the Competition Law team of the podcast and your host. In this podcast, we discuss competition law updates and we invite competition lawyers and academicians as, as our guests throughout the globe. Let's welcome our esteemed guest for today's episode, Dr. R. Brook, who is an Associate Professor of Competition Law and Policy at University of Leeds. Welcome, ma'am. Thank you very much. So we'll be discussing on the topic non-competition interests in EU antitrust law and introducing Dr. Orbrook to all of you. She is an associate professor in competition law and policy at the School of Law at the University of Leeds. And she's also the deputy director of the Center for Business Law and Practice there. She's also co-director UK branch of the Academic Society of Competition Law, Escola UK. She specializes she specializes in international EU and comparative competition law and policy and empirical legal research. With an interdisciplinary academic background, she combines the interests and experience of law and economics. She holds a PhD from the Amsterdam Center for European Law and Governance, in which she conducted a quantitative and qualitative empirical study examining the role of public policy and non-competition interests in the multi-level governance enforcement system of EU competition law. So this introduction is not just a professional introduction, but it also related to our today's topic of interest that is non-competition interest in EU antitrust law. So ma'am, let us start. Uh, Are you ready for the conversation? Absolutely. Really looking forward to it. Yes, and first of all, congratulations on your recent publication, the book titled Non-Competition Interests in EU Antitrust Law, an Empirical Study in Article 101 TFEU, published by Cambridge University Press. Ma'am, please enlighten us about the intent and content of the book. So thank you very much for having me on the podcast and having an opportunity to discuss the book. Um, In the book, I study the role of non-competition interests, sometimes also known by the term of public policy, in the enforcement of EU competition law. The question of whether competition rules should be sometimes relaxed to promote other important economic and social interests, for example, environmental protection, employment and workers' rights, data protection or recovering from economic or health crisis is a fundamental challenge which is common to almost all competition systems across the globe. It requires finding a correct balance between the protection of competition, the protection of markets on the one hand, and the protection or even promotion of other important policies on the other hand. When it comes to the European Union, the question on how to address such a balance traces all the way back to the establishment of the European communities in the 1950s. Because striking such a balance involves sensitive political and economic decisions, the founding member states of the European Union have agreed to disagree on this matter. Instead, the prohibition on anti-competitive agreements, which is now date is codified as Article 101 TFU, was drafted in a vague manner that does not provide a decisive answer on the role of non-competition interests. Article 101 hints that there is some room for the consideration of non-competition interests, for example, in the exception of Article 101.3 of the treaty, but the article does not detail what type of interest can be taken into account. 
what should be their role, what should be their scope, or what is the legal or economic test that should be used to guide the considerations of those non-competition interests. Uh, for this reason, legal and economic scholarship have been extensively exploring the role of non-competition interests under Article 101 TFU for years and decades now. Um, however, such scholarship was limited because it mostly focused on three areas. First of all, on the legal and economic theory of this type of balance or on leading cases, rather than on the day-to-day -day application and enforcement of the competition rules. Second, um, most scholarship focused on dedicated balancing tools that are actually listed in the treaties, for example, Article 101.3 that I've mentioned, or on dedicated balancing tools that were developed by the European uh, Court's case law, for example, the rule of reason. Finally, most scholarship focused on the policy and the practice taking place in the EU level by the European Commission and EU courts and did not give much attention to what's going on in the member states. Um, for this reason, in my new book, um, I try to add to such important studies by shifting the focus from the theory to the practice. I have empirically studied how the Commission, EU courts, but also national competition authorities and national courts of five representative member states, which include France, Germany, Hungary, the Netherlands, and the UK, while it was still a member state, um, and examining how they actually administer this balance in their enforcement actions and inactions. I have created a quantitative and qualitative database covering all of the over 3,100 formal and informal public enforcement actions of Article 101 TFU and the National Equivalent Prohibition on Anti-Competitive Agreement, which covered the whole period of EU competition law, meaning from the creation of the European Economic Community in 1957, going all the way up to 2017. Database, I believe, offers a comprehensive coding of the development of the principles, the rules, and the concept that governing the role of non-competition interest across the years, across the different member states. Um, and the book summarizes those developments also in over 50 graphs and figures that are presented. Um, I believe that this new approach offered by the book exposed some previously unidentified uh, shifts and trends in the role of non-competition interest, and I hope we can discuss some of them today. Thank you so much, ma'am, for enlightening us about the book. I hope that this book adds value to the competition academia, to the competition jurisprudence, especially in the non-competition interest arena, and you very well reviewed the existing literature and why and how your book would add value to the new jurisprudence that we need in non-competition interest research subject. Come, uh, move. What is the continuing with our discussion, what is the general balancing framework and broad categories of various balancing tools under Article 101 TFEU? So, one of the benefits of taking the new empirical approach was that it allowed for a more comprehensive mapping of the different formal and informal tools that were used to take into account non-competition interests. Traditionally, Article 101.3 has been seen as the main treaty provision for balancing competition and non-competition interests. And for because of that reason, it was the focus of most scholarship and most of the assessment. 
Yet, this study reveals that Article 101.3 is certainly not the only tool to account for non-competition interest. In fact, it shows that it was not even the primarily balancing tool in practice. Instead, the book is structured around six different balancing tools, each one received a dedicated chapter. So in addition to the chapter that focuses on Article 101.3 individual exemptions or exceptions, there is a chapter focusing on block exemption regulations and how they serve as a balancing tool, a chapter focusing on Article 101.1 exceptions like the rule of reason, ancillary restraints, or even de minimis, a chapter focusing on unique national exceptions to Article 101, which originate from rules adopted by the member states or interpretation of the member states, remedies imposed for an Article 101 infringement, for example, how accepting commitments or moderating the fine is a way to balance between competition and non-competition interests, and finally, how priority-setting choices of the competition enforcers act as a tool to balance. I show in the book that the selection of the balancing tool is not value-free. That means that each tool entails a different kind of balancing and may result in different outcomes. Thank you, ma'am, for telling us about the general balancing framework and the broad categories. And you have divided it into six categories. Related to the six category, I remember that you present a re- presented a report at UNCTAD on priority setting. We may discuss that in the, some of the future episodes, maybe. So thank you for the answer. Moving forward, how did modernization of EU competition law enforcement and regulation EC number one of 2003 impact the consideration of non-competition interests? Yeah, so identifying the role of non-competition interests was always a challenge. But it became even more interesting, more complicated toward the new millennium as EU competition law system was reformed. This reform, which is often known as the modernization of EU competition law, had three pillars, each of them affecting the consideration of non-competition interest in a different way. As part of the first substantive pillar of modernization, the Commission called for introducing greater economic thinking to EU competition law. Accordingly, the Commission's policy papers issued from around the early 2000s considerably limited the possibility to relax the competition rules in order to promote other policies. Essentially, the Commission left room only for non-competition interests that can be expressed in efficiency or monetary terms and would lead to the enhancement of the consumer welfare narrowly understood. This meant that many non-competition interests that were previously taken into account by the Commission, by the EU courts, were no longer applicable, at least in the Commission's view. In parallel to that, under the second institutional pillar of modernization, the enforcement of Article 101 was decentralized. That meant that as part of Regulation 1-2003, the Commission lost its exclusive power to grant exemptions from the prohibition on anti-competitive agreements. Since May 2004, when the regulation entered into force, competition authorities and national courts in each of the countries in the EU also have the power to balance competition and non-competition interests. However, because the Commission's policy paper, I mentioned before, are binding on the Commission alone, 
National competition authorities and national courts may, and as I showed in the book, also do, adopt divergent interpretations as a role to non-competition interests. Those national interpretations are inspired by the legal, economic, and social traditions. In addition, some of those um, member states have adopted their unique balancing tool that can also differ from the EU-wide ones. Finally, the role of non-competition interests was affected by the third procedural pillar of modernization. This third pillar had transformed the enforcement setting. Nowadays, firms are no longer required to notify their anti-competitive agreements to the European Commission for authorization. Instead, they must self-assess the compatibility of their agreements with EU competition law and as a part of that to assess and evaluate whether overriding non-competition interests can justify an other, otherwise anti-competitive agreement. So taking those three shifts together has considerably changed the role of non-competition interests. Thank you, ma'am, for telling us about the establishment or say the origin as well as the modernization of EU competition law enforcement with respect to non-competition interest, particularly the substantive pillar, the institutional pillar and the procedural pillar. Now discussing like what are the remarkable changes that have been brought in consideration of non-competition interest as a result of regulation EC number no. one of 2003 and the change in the commission's approach. Um, yeah, indeed. So when we take the three shifts um, of the that come from the modernization, so Regulation One Two Thousand and Three, together with the substantive shift in the Commission, which was more a matter of policy change, um, we can see, and in the book I tried to prove that empirically, that each of those three pillars of modernization had a strong impact on the role of non-competition interest in practice. More specifically, the book points to a threefold shift in the role of non-competition interest in the modernization era, which raises serious concerns about the effectiveness, uniformity, and legal certainty of the balancing in the past 20 years or so. The first shift is a change in the type of balancing tools employed. The empirical findings in the book reveal that prior to modernization, the Commission and the EU courts use the designated balancing tools of Article 101.1 and 101.3 and the block exemption regulations. Those instruments, which are labeled in the book as the explicit substantive balancing tools because they are designated for the purpose of balancing, directly acknowledge and engage in the balancing of the conflicting interests. They are transparent and clear about what they are doing. Because of that, these instruments have been the focus of almost all of previous studies, leading many to suggest that since the Commission has almost never justified an agreement using such tools following modernization, so since 2004, it could be infirmed that non-competition interests no longer play a role in the enforcement. This conclusion, however, I believe, is not supported by the empirical findings. The empirical findings rather show that non-competition interests still play a role in the enforcement, but in a more hidden manner, behind closed doors. Instead of using the explicit substantive tools, many competition authorities take non-competition interests into account by choosing not to enforce the competition law prohibition against specific agreements if such agreements promote certain types of non-competition interests. 
the authorities refrain from investigating such agreements, decide to settle such agreements by accepting negotiated remedies, like commitments, issuing and binding informal opinions, or even using sector regulation or other types of laws instead of enforcing competition law. And this is especially true when the competition authority has a broader mandate beyond competition law. In the book, I call this type of balancing as the dark matter of balancing. Invisible forms of balancing triggered by the institutional setup or the specific enforcement procedure of the commission and of the national competition authorities. This form of balancing by dint of inaction are collectively labeled in the book as implicit procedural balancing tools and I go dive into them and show different examples um, in the EU. So this is the first shift, shift from the um, explicit substantive to the implicit procedural balancing tools. A second shift that we can see happening as a result of the modernization is a transition from an EU-based to a national-based type of balancing. Following modernization, national competition authorities and courts devise their own approaches on how to apply the explicit substantive balancing tools in a manner that often stands in conflict or even direct conflict with the Commission's more economic approach. In addition to that, some member states have created their own national balancing tools, as I already mentioned, and did not always align with those of the EU level. The third and last important shift uh, in the role of non-competition interests following modernization is a transition in the role of the EU courts. In the past, before, up until the end of the millennia, the EU courts had an active and leading role in shaping the fundamental balancing pr principles. The courts have discussed what should be the role of non-competition interests and looked at specific cases. Even if there was no clear framework that was adopted, they were very active in those questions. However, following modernization, while it seemed that the courts did not fully embrace the Commission's new approach, or at least in part, they have also not staked out a clear position on what should be the applicable principles. Um, I argue in the book that each of those three transitions separately, and especially when those three of them are being taken together, have impacted the effectiveness, uniformity, and legal certainty of balancing across the single market. This means, in my opinion, that although the modernization of EU competition law might have an overall positive effect on EU competition law, when it comes to the role of non-competition interest in a balancing, this effect was counterproductive. The consideration of non-competition interest became less rational, less analytical, and subject to different rules in different member states. Thank you, ma'am, for your observations on the development, the remarkable changes that have been brought in consideration of non-competition interest, the various shifts, substantive shifts, also the shifts in EU courts and the national competition authorities. Thank you so much for your observation and your response. Could you please also elaborate more on the implicit procedural tools, as you mentioned, in which enforcers refuse to apply Article 101 TFEU to promote non-competition interest? Yeah, so the implicit procedural balancing tools is probably one of the important contributions of the study and of using a bottom-up bottom empirical approach. 
When we normally think of balancing tools in competition law or in other areas um, of law, we normally think of designated legal or economic tools dedicated to resolving a conflict between competing interests. In practice, however, I show that after the modernization of competition law, competition law authorities and national courts can also circumvent taking a decision on such matters by deciding not to investigate a case in which non-competition interests might play a role, or by setting, settling such cases in informal or alternative ways. Inaction, in other words, is also a way to implicitly take into account non-competition interests in the enforcement. Using such implicit procedural balancing tools can make a lot of sense. For example, it allows competition authorities to avoid lengthy and costly proceeding and to waste their very scarce resources on cases where the outcome would be a non-infringement decision or an insignificant infringement decision. For this reason, for this precisely reason, the Commission, for example, declares that if it believes that an agreement can be justified by Article 101.3, it will close a case without taking a formal um, or an observable decision. However, this practice of balancing by using the implicit uh, procedural tools becomes problematic where most of the consideration of non-competition interest shifts from the explicit substantive balancing tools to the implicit procedural. The almost exclusive reliance on the implicit procedural balancing tools in practice poses a threat to the effectiveness, uniformity, and legal certainty of balancing. Differing from the explicit substantive balancing tools, competition authorities and courts have a credit blanche to account for non-competition interests when they decide not to take up a case or when they decide to resolve a case by alternative measures. For example, there is no limit on the type of benefits they can take into account, no limit on the legal or economic test that should guide their assessment. There is no guarantee that the competition and non-competition interests are actually being weighted against each other and in a correct way, or that the harm to competition is actually limited to what is necessary for respecting the non-competition interest. When it comes to environmental protection, for example, this raises concerns of greenwashing. Moreover, because those decisions of inaction are informal and are not transparent, they're also not subject to judicial review or to scrutiny by the general public and academics. Therefore, in the book, I suggest um, that competition authorities should try to shift back to at least considering some of the cases using the designated substantive uh, balancing tools. Thank you, ma'am. And by explaining us, thank you for explaining about the implicit procedural tools and also your observations regarding the same and the behavior of EU courts, commission and the national competition authorities on the legal and economic tests that they conduct with respect to non-competition interests. Now, considering the last question that we have to discuss, that as we discussed in the book, national balancing tools may accept agreements that would otherwise be not acceptable under EU balancing tools of Article 101.1 and 3. What are its posit positive effects, possible effects and implications? 
National balancing tools and national interpretations of the EU balancing tools is a very interesting topic, which is still not fully explored, either by the EU jurisprudence or by academics. The influence of national practice is highly significant. Since 2004, since the modernization, we estimated around 90% of the enforcement of Article 101 TFEU is performed by national authorities and can later be reviewed essentially only by national courts. And that's in addition to purely national cases that also take part in many of the member states. That means that the lack of a uniform EU-wide approach to the role of non-competition interest will result in practice firms across the common market are subject to considerably different standards when conducting business. Given the limited EU case law and writing on this matter, it's still unclear if, and if so, to what extent, those national tools and national interpretation actually comply with EU law. Um, in any event, in my opinion, such divergence in the interpretation of the role of non-competition interests goes against the spirit of Regulation 1-2003, even if not uh, against its explicit words, and of the modernization in general, that emphasized and called for creation of a level playing field where all businesses are subject to the same rules across Europe. Um, however, while this is my opinion, other scholars disagree and point to some benefit of plurality and divergence across member states, for example, of experimentalism. Very well. Thank you so much, ma'am, for your observations regarding the ex experimentation or say the implication of national balancing tools and how they may accept the agreements that would otherwise be not acceptable under EU. This is a very interesting field in competition law, non-competition interests, and I'm very hopeful that this publication will contribute to competition jurisprudence and scholars as well as the competition professionals will think of the same, will debate on the same, might also agree to you on a lot of issues, might also disagree. This is a very productive debate that we are having on non-competition interests in the European Union's antitrust law. I've really and thoroughly learned a lot during this session and enjoyed talking to you on the same. Congratulations on your publication. We hope that larger audience read the book, the authors, the scholars, the academicians, the competition lawyers, not only in India, not only in UK, but also other parts of the globe where are also from so thank you so much ma'am for your time and it was lovely hosting you.